First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we who also told you before the solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. How many times within the Christian circles have you heard someone say, or even say it yourself, I wonder what God's will is for my life? Anyone ever asked that question? Anyone ever talked to another Christian who said that? I'm pretty sure it's 100% in this church. 100%. What's God's will for my life? When people ask that question, it's because they're actually looking for the Lord to provide them answers to some of their life's biggest questions. It's usually when a decision has to be made. Who am I, whom am I to marry? Where should I go to school? Should I go to school? Should I change jobs? Get a new career and the life, you know, and the, and the list goes on. Now when asking about God's will, the majority of, of the time then, Christians are thinking in terms of one's purpose or destiny in life. It's usually in vocation or location. What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to go? Now what's important for us this morning is that when the New Testament speaks about God's will for our lives, it's actually when the actual words God's will are used, it's not in relation to one's destiny. It's in relation to one's character. God's will is in relation to one's holy living. I want to show you two PowerPoint slides of all the places that the word God's will is used in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.15 For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Ephesians 5, 15-20 Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. But understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, 
that he may work in us what is pleasing to him. Now move forward to the next one. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 20. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And finally, our passage today, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Without question, whenever the, work, the God's will is spoken of in the New Testament, it is in relation to one's character. How you live as a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that God can't have a purpose for you or has a desire for you in terms of, you know, a job or a career or, or moving or, you know, things like that. I think the Lord is involved in those things. But whenever you talk about God's will in the New Testament, it is clear from the New Testament scriptures alone. It's in relation to one's character. He cares more about how you live as opposed to where you live. <laughs> I'll say that again. He cares more about how you live than where you live. Today's concern is our sexual purity. So let's read verses 1 through 2. Finally then, brethren, request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you still excel more. Paul opens up here by speaking quite favorably about the Thessalonians' faith and conduct. He says in terms of how you do walk, you are pleasing to God. So as you stand now as Christians, you are pleasing to the Lord. He says, I'm, I'm proud of you, really. But what I love here is that Paul says, even though I'm proud of you and you are pleasing to God, I'd like you to still excel all the more. In other words, let me encourage you, even though you're doing well, to go the extra mile. Now, as I thought about what this may look like, I thought, man, as parents, as coaches, as anyone here who's a head of an organization with people underneath you, you can relate to this type of talk. So let's say your son or your daughter or there's an athlete uh, participating in something that you are overseeing and you watch them doing well. You're super proud of their conduct, their behavior, their performance, and so on. You're grateful that, you're, that, that you're, you're, they're kids or they're on your team and you're proud of them. But as you're watching them, you just see these little things here and there that you're like, oh, if you just corrected that little thing or if you just did this a little different, you could just get that extra, you could excel just that little extra. Because you can maybe see that if they don't correct it, it could lead to problems down the road. So you're proud now, but you could see there's still room for growth. And the point of pointing it out to your kids or your athletes is not to tear them down it's because you want what's best for them. And you know in the long run it's going to be better for them if they take your instruction. This is what Paul's doing here. But I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2 how Paul seeks to motivate. Notice who he puts the emphasis on to increase their motivation to excel all the more. 
He makes it about Jesus. You catch that in verse 1? Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord. This is about the relationship to the Lord. Now, here's what's important. Who's given the instruction? Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. They're the mouthpieces for the Lord. When, the, when, they, when they, um, they show up in Thessalonica, it's Paul's mouth they hear speaking. But what Paul's doing is he's saying, I'm reminding you of what Jesus taught us, which I'm passing on to you. I am just simply a mouthpiece, an agent of the Lord. And the authority that I carry as an apostle isn't man-made. It's not about me. It's about the authority given to me by the Lord who commissioned me. So, you want to know what these instructions are? I want you to think about Jesus when you hear this, not about what Paul says when you hear this. Now, that's a really important lesson for us in Genesis House. See, for those of you who sit under those who are responsible for teaching the, the Lord's Word in our church, um, have, can sort of learn from this. You, you might sit under someone like myself or like you know Laurel and Pat in a Bible study and you hear us being responsible for the teaching of God's Word. Now, often when we speak, you might take offense to something that I say or that Laurel and Pat in their Bible studies, for example, say or even the women's studies, you know, for those who lead them. Remember, though, what Paul's saying. What we're proclaiming to you are not our words. We're simply the mouthpieces of the words of Jesus. This doesn't originate with us. What I'm going to speak to you today does not originate in Andrew Dexter. This originates in Jesus Christ, and I'm responsible for giving you that word. So you may not like me. You may not like my style. You may not like my dress, my choices of music, how I use my free time, even something I say from the pulpit. But the reality is, this is about the Lord. If you don't like what's being said, it's not me or us you have a problem with, it's Him. It's Him. It's His Word. The exception is when I or someone else teaches an error. Now you have all the right to take exception because that's not what the Lord says. But that's why we have dialogue after church. You have your opportunity to say, I think you're in error. And we have that open discussion. But if you don't say anything, I assume that you understand that I've actually taught you the word of God the way Jesus intended. Also, we have places for coffee and in your living rooms to discuss these theological issues. But again, I think this is really important for us to remember that our job as teachers here is to represent Jesus Christ, and we come to you by his authority. The issues with him, not me or anyone else, if it's an issue about what the scriptures say. Now, as we stated from the beginning, the primary issue that Paul wants the Thessalonians to submit to Jesus in and excel all the more in was sexual purity. 
And we pick this up in verse 3. For this is the will of God, that your sanctification, or sorry, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Since it's God's will that we are sanctified, it probably is important that we know what that word means. If that's the will for his, your life. Sanctification, if you look it up in the Greek, it's interchangeable for the word holiness. In fact, some places in the Bible we can just say God's will for your life is holiness, and it covers the word sanctification. And sanctification is a big deal in this chapter. It occurs in verse 3. It also, the word sanctification occurs in verse 4. And the word sanctification occurs in verse 7. 3, 4, and 7. It's a central theme to Paul in this passage. And to be holy then, really, simply, is to be set apart from sin. What's the difference between the Lord and every other person that's ever created? He's sinless and we're not. And we're not. To be holy like him is to be set apart from sin. Now, because it's about sexual morality then, we need to define this. Let's look at sexual morality. The Greek word is the word porneia, where we get pornography from. It's any sexual activity outside of the confines of a biblically defined marriage. And I had to use that term in today's culture, a biblically defined marriage. Okay, so it's any sexual relationship outside of a man and a woman in a marriage union. If you look these verses up, you will see them interchangeably used with immorality. Adultery is described as immorality in Revelation chapter 2. Incest, 1 Corinthians 5. Homosexuality, 1 Corinthians 6. Prostitution, 1 Corinthians 6. And premarital sex, 1 Corinthians 7. Now for Paul to bring this up, it must have meant something. It must have meant that there was some kind, some people in the church who were still engaging in these areas. Or, if they hadn't yet, at the very least were thinking about heading in that direction. Thinking that's a possible arena for them as a Christian. Otherwise, Paul, it's kind of weird for Paul to put this in here at this place, isn't it? Like if, if, if this God's will is your sanctification and it's not sexual purity, why even bring it up? Why not bring up another category of life in which it, it matters to them? So it must have been something going on or at least thinking about uh, moving into in the church in, in Thessalonica. Now how far gone they, these people were or to what percentage we don't know. But I'd like to speak to you a little bit about the Greco-Roman culture and their attitude in regards to sex. And it starts with this idea of dualism. In the Greek culture, the Roman culture, dualism was this. Dualism. The body and the spirit are two distinct entities. The body in the material world is bad. The gods don't want anything to do with the body and don't even care about the body. The spirit is what's important. So if you're dualistic, and you think the body is irrelevant to the gods, doesn't matter, and this material world is evil and has nothing good in it, but the spirit is all that's important, can you see why you get into trouble in the era of sexuality? 
If you don't believe that your gods care about your body, then you're free to do whatever the heck you want with it. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter. It makes, makes no difference to the Lord. Or actually to the gods, which then in Christianity, you'd adopt the same idea, right? You've received Jesus Christ, so your spirit is good. You are destined for eternity in a relationship with him. So, again, from their cultural perspective, you're going to move into the area of sexuality, be free with your body, thinking, well, I'm already saved, so what difference does it make? My spirit's good. And this is the issue. And that, this is why 1 Corinthians was so powerful, right? With uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And let me read this to you. Um, it's got to flip there quickly. 1 Corinthians 6, 16. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is in one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to this Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that the, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? The Corinthians don't know that. They don't know that, or they've forgotten that. They haven't realized that their physical body matters to the Lord. And that's where the Holy Spirit indwells. So Paul is really challenging the dualism, the dualistic thinking, saying, you know, what you do with your body does matter in the spiritual realm. Radical teaching to a Greco-Roman person. And so, with that in mind, look at these quotes. Look at these quotes to see um, why you'd have the freedom to do this kind of thing. F.F. Bruce in his commentary said, a man might have a mistress who could provide him with also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while casual gratification was readily available from a prostitute. The function of his wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children. There was no body of public opinion to discourage immorality. But here's where it gets really interesting. This next quote comes 400 B.C., so Jesus, uh, Paul writes this around AD 50, give or take, 50 to 60. So this is 450 years earlier, this Greek philosopher writes this. We keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and we keep wives to the beginning of children and the faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a man supports his wife and family, there's no shame whatsoever in extramarital affairs. This is the Thessalonian, Corinthian, New Testament culture of the Greco-Roman world. And you can see why pervasively Paul has to write about this issue in the New Testament. So he has to teach them. And we see the teaching in verse 4. Continued teaching in verse 4. He says, I want you, each of you, to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. What does the, Paul mean by possess his own vessel? <laughs> the word vessel in the New Testament 
can be used in two different ways. One, it can be used as wife. The word vessel means wife. 1 Peter 3.7. It also can mean one's body. 2 Timothy 2.21. Gordon Fee goes as far as to say penis in terms of body. Yes, I said that in public. Everyone can laugh. Get it off the chest, especially the kids. You can get it out now. Penis. There you go. Okay. The context, the context strongly supports the second option, that it's a body or the part of the body. And here's why. Paul would otherwise be saying, each man in the church needs to learn to, how to possess his own wife. Well, the word possess means to control. It seems kind of weird that Paul would tell everybody in the church that they need to learn to control their own wife. Why is that the case? Because now he's actually speaking to only the wives in there and not the men in this arena. Right? Secondly, um, the men are the primary problem in the church, not the wives. So again, it just sort of bypasses the men altogether. Another reason why it doesn't make sense is because it wouldn't address single people. If it's about possessing your own wife, then sexual immorality is a free-for-all for those who are single. And so, he, again, he, it's got to be there for his own body. So he's not focusing on the external behavior of someone else. He's talking to each individual. Learn how to control yourself in regards to immorality. Control your own body, which results in a life of holiness and honors God. But not only does it honor God, it honors others as well. Look at verse 6. After he gives this instruction, he says, Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. By doing this, by staying sexually pure, you not only honor the Lord, you honor your brother. Now this word brother, as you know, is not biological, right? This is spiritual. Lots of places in the New Testament we talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a spiritual reference to the inside the church home, the church family. So how would this look? Perhaps there's men in the church that are trying to go after another man's wife. Maybe um, going after someone else's daughter. Maybe single people are searching each other out in the church community. And Paul says, listen, in the area of sexuality and sexual purity, do not let this happen within the Christian community. Seek to honor the Lord by your conduct. Be sanctified, be set apart, be holy. As I was thinking about this, you know, what's the difference between sanctification and honor and lustful passion? See, you notice the contrast? He says, do not be like the Gentiles who live out their lives in lustful passion. Instead, be sanctified. What's the difference between the two? The difference, really, is in who's being served. Who is being served? In lustful passion, you're serving yourself. It's about you and what you want in your supposed needs. In sanctification and honor, it's about someone else. It's about the Lord, and it's about your brother or sister. It's about where the service is placed. And so for the people in the, in, uh, who know the Lord, we're to live lives that seeks to serve 
others. Now, as a way of once again motivating the Thessalonians to obey the Lord's teaching, he gives them a pretty strict warning in verse 6. He says, Let no man transgress and defraud his brother, for the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we, uh, we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for purpose, the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's pretty strong here. He's saying, listen guys, if you don't obey the Lord's instruction in this, remember he's an avenger of all these things. He's an avenging type God. Yes, he's full of grace, but if you take advantage of his grace, there's a point in the future where he moves to an avenging type role. Now, Paul doesn't tell us in what way does he execute justice. Is it in this lifetime that he does it? And, and, we, and he can. He could choose to do something in this lifetime. Or is it eternal? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. But we do know that for people who refuse to repent in this area, and they refuse to heed the Lord's instruction once they've received it, that if you continue to practice in this area of sin with no repentance, that it'll eventually end up in spiritual avenging. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. I want to just read this to you. Actually, it's not 5 verse 1. Hold on. It's 5 later on. He says in verse 16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So then he says this, here's the deeds of the flesh. Immorality, there it is. Impurity, sensuality, and so on. So immorality is named in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians as one of the sins um, that's of the flesh. And then he says in verse 23, um, um, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's important there is the pronoun you. He's speaking to a Galatian church. Who is the you? It's not the outside people. It's not the non-Christians. It's the Christian community. He says, I've taught you in the past, and I'm teaching you once again now, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's written to a Christian community. So grace has been covering the church in these areas. Grace. Totally God watching this happening and he's, it's purely by the sacrifice on the cross that this is, that they're redeemed. But now a warning comes in and he says, listen guys, if you continue in this and do not repent and you, and you play this game with God your whole life, eventually it will lead to the reality that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's been grace for a period, but now you've been rebelling against the instruction that we've given you. And you, I don't want you to play Russian roulette with the Lord. Someone might ask at this point, Andrew, or so what? Like, why does this even matter? Why does God care about the body and what you do with it sexually? Like, 
Why can't we have the Greco-Roman mindset and just say, who cares? Well, it's an interesting question because I can't think of anywhere in the scriptures where the God actually says, here's why I, why I care. So we're left to deduce with knowing scriptural principles and things that we just know through the wisdom of life. So I'm going to suggest to you five reasons as to why God cares. These are just, this is where I become now the, you want to take issue, take issue with me and not the Lord, because the Lord doesn't actually flat out tell you. But these are, using what I believe is God's wisdom, these are five areas of why I think he cares. And the first thing that we need to first state is that God is not a killjoy. He, he wants us to be careful out of our protection, our personal protection, and out of love for humanity. How is this articulated? How does he protect us? And how does he protect humanity by having us abstain and going God's way with marriage and sexuality? First one is the high value God places on life. Every time it says be fruitful and multiply, right? It was in the beginning in Genesis, after Noah and the flood, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fruitfulness is about being together sexually to produce children. So God wants life to happen. But he realizes that the safest place for life to happen is within a family unit with a loving mom and a loving dad. He doesn't want children to be produced outside of two loving parents. Because we know that the heartache that that can bring on families when that doesn't occur. It's not that Jesus can't redeem all this stuff. Lots of us come from divorced homes or, or, or not divorced homes, we come from like single parent homes and so on. But we know that uh, the Lord wants two loving parents to raise children. It's where stability is going to be given. He believes that's the best area for stability. Emotional stability, nurture, and all sorts of things. So he places a high value on life. Second is the prevention of disease. I want to speak a little bit to the STD crisis in the world. You think of all the money, the millions upon millions of dollars that are spent around the world trying to treat sexually transmitted diseases and all the emotional pain that individuals face by carrying those diseases. If everyone went the Lord's way, there would be no such thing as an STD. You want to cure sexually transmitted diseases? You don't need condoms in the, in the high school um, bathrooms. If everyone said, Lord, we're going to go your way, did you know STDs would be cured in one generation? In 75 years, the world could be completely free of STDs. It's the only disease I can think of that by going God, like, there's probably more, but just off the top of my head, only disease I can think of that we perpetually face is that if everyone went with the Lord's way, it'd be gone in one generation. Because every child born from this day forward would say, I'm going to get married and have kids and be faithful to my spouse the entire time. Also, it would reduce the need for orphanages. It wouldn't eliminate them because people out of who die in war where parents die in war and things and kids are left, they would, there's potential for them. 
But most orphanages are really filled with children whose parents have basically said, we can't provide and we don't want. And they weren't in the married state. A lot of it. Again, it's not that we God can't redeem and use these things for His glory. But again, it reduces the need for them. And that's all I'm saying. It would greatly reduce abortions. Stats Canada, this is a one, the first line I read in an article from Stats Canada. It said this, In Canada, as in most Western industrial, industrialized countries, abortion patients tend to be single. Tend to be single. Not married. And when I looked at the U.S. statistics, this was remarkable. This is Stats USA from 1973 to 2020. So it's pretty uh, up to date. 1973 to, 1973 to 2020. It said in 2020, there were around 41 legal abortions per 100 live births amongst unmarried women in the United States. 41 abortions per 100 live births amongst unmarried women in the United States. That's a two-to-one ratio. In comparison, the rate of abortions per live births among married women was 5 out of 100. So if you're unmarried, 40 will have abortions. If you're married, 5. Staggering difference. That percentage was virtually identical um, no matter what year you went in. The highest was 57. And the year there was 57 abortions for every 100 births, um, live births, the, the highest in the married was 6.5. So we're looking statistically at the same percentages. Finally, is improve the level of intimacy within the marriage that you already have. Any of us who've come out of sexual sin that decided to be with people before we married our other partners knows that we've had to work through those issues as a married person. We just have. Because we carry with us the previous relationships since the one that we are. And again, God's amazing. Like He can heal and do all sorts of crazy things. I know He has in my own life. But the reality is, is that, again, He just wants to protect us from all this stuff. He loves us. He's not a killjoy. It's for our own good. If you could just throw the next one up, Randy. This is really important. Healing and freedom can be found in Jesus Christ. You might be a victim of these things that I'm reading. You also might be a perpetrator of the things that I've been reading. But praise to be God that there's forgiveness and healing found in the Lord. If you are struggling in these areas, like if you kind of, if the Lord's speaking to you about something in your own life at this current moment, either on the victim side or maybe the perpetrating side, um, we'd like to help you and pray for you and, and to walk you through healing in these areas. And if you want to, you can talk to me privately um, after church or um, you know, throughout the week and we can talk about how this may look for you in your own life. But again, this is about the Lord seeking to protect and love. But that's not the message of the world. 
and the message of the devil, like Jeff's slide up front, right? The devil's trick is always the same. He's, he's, he's good at his job, and he has the same lie. He's basically, like, he's basically saying this, God wants to hold back what's best for you, and he wants you not to have fun in this world. <laughs> you can be your own God and do whatever the heck you want, and there'll be no consequences. Well, when I look at this list, there's consequences in every single one by not going the Lord's way. Why is this important for parents to really hear this now? You who are Christian parents, if you teach your children in this way, this will most likely not result in them following the Lord in this area. If, if they come to you and say, well, why can't I have sex as, you know, at 16 years old? Or why do I have to be married? And you say, well, because the Lord says so. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, you know, your sanctification is the Lord's will. And you leave it at that? There's, no, there's not likely going to be success in this area for your kids. Why? It's about a rule. It's about a rule. And I know your personalities. It's like mine. We hate rules. We like to fight against rules. So if you just say no because I said so, that's not likely going to cut it. But if you sit down your children and you work through this list, and, and it really developed this list. Like spend like two hours or three hours studying each of these categories. And go, honey, like, you know, I love you. And let me just show you what God's best is for you. Let's look at this stuff and look at all the tragedy in, the, in this world because of these areas. Do you see now why the Lord wants you to go his way? You are more likely going to have success with your children and raising them. Because it's not about a rule. It's about a relationship with a heavenly loving father who seeks to protect and love humanity. So if I can encourage you as parents, have these conversations, and not just once. Like, we always joke about this as, as guys in, you know, in a church. Like, do you ever have the talk with your dad? The talk? Like, it's like one talk? Like, seriously, like, how many of you are skilled in your jobs? Were you, did you go to one class for five minutes to get good at your job? Or did you take years and years of training like, the answer is obvious. You don't just have a talk with your kids. You have multiple talks with your kids. Ongoing talks from a young age all the way till, the, till they're married. Just keep going. This is, the most, like, this is one of the most important areas in life for your kids to work through. So don't be embarrassed to go into these areas. Have these conversations. Don't make it about a rule. Make it about the, the reasonableness of going God's way in sexual purity. Help them understand the Lord as a protector and not as a killjoy. Anyway, none of that was in my notes, but I, it's important to say. Okay, let's finish this off. There was one more key area in which uh, the Thessalonians were pleasing to the Lord and yet Paul wanted them to go further. And we pick this up in verse 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to, still, or sorry, to excel still more. Same language as the area of sexual purity, right? You're pleasing to God, you're doing well, but I'd love you to ex excel more. And what's the area? It's in love. It's in love. Brotherly love for one another. 
how they treat one another in the community, how they seek to serve each other in their own and different people's needs. So they're great in the area of love, but they can just get that little um, extra, if you will, to do even more than they already are. But there is one area that he does want to address that they do need to improve in for sure. And that is this area of this being willing to provide for themselves and not be dependent on others for their material needs. Let me say that again. One area that Paul seeks the need to address is that they need to learn not to be dependent on others for their survival, but to work with their own hands and provide for themselves. We pick this up in verse 11 and 12. He says, we make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So he wants them to live a quiet life. The word quiet just simply means peaceable. Live a peaceable life. Live in society where you do not make a, a, a nuisance of yourself. Do not make a disturbance. Be peaceful. How were they to be peaceful? It was a relationship to how they were taken care of in terms of their needs. These people clearly in Thessalonica, some of them were being dependent upon others for provisional care when they were fully capable of providing for themselves. And that's the key difference, right? We're not talking about people who have come on hard times, people who have lost their jobs, people who are sick and they can't work. We're talking of people who are physically able-bodied, capable people who have chosen not to work and to allow themselves to mooch off of the wealth of others. That is who Paul's addressing. And this is clear, because there's three observations in the text that make that obvious, or two, I should say. He says, I want you to attend to your own business and work with your hands, so they're clearly capable, and to provide for your own needs so that you're not in any need. These are the key things here. And of chief concern for Paul is for those outside the church and the perception this would give. He wants them to behave properly towards outsiders. So for Paul, the gospel's at stake in this, right? And you can see why. You say, you know, what do you believe and who do you believe in? Well, I'm, I don't believe in the, you know, going to the temple anymore and sacrificing to Apollos, but I believe in the Lord Jesus. And he's redeemed me and he's, you know, and you talk about all the forgiveness he offers and this new way of life. And then this new way of life, as a pagan watches you, is one of laziness. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. You belong to Jesus, but you refuse to work when you can, but you're mooching off the back of others. Yes, that's who I believe in. You can see how that can impact the gospel, can't you? Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Be people who are capable of work and actually tend to your own needs. Do not be a nuisance in society. Live peaceably with other people. And don't give the gospel a bad name. One of my commentators, well, man, like this is strong language. He said, um, Howard Marshall, he said, Paul's concern was that Christians do not become parasites in society. Those are his words, not mine. But, they're, but you get the point. So Paul is concerned that the way we live as believers commands the respect of those outside the church. We're not to live off of the backs of others. We're to work hard to make sure 
that those outside the church would not take a purview of, our, of us and put our so-called faith into disrepute. Okay, I've said a lot. I feel like I've run a marathon up here. Maybe I should have stuck to my notes and I'd be done already. But uh, Anyway, so what can we learn from today's sermon? Number one, whenever God's will is mentioned in the New Testament, the emphasis is always in relation to one's character and not destiny. I hope that's freeing to you. How much anxiety and worry do you put into what is God's will and you're thinking vocation, location, destiny, purpose? What's amazing is like literally when the word when the words God's will are used, it's in character. Just live holy lives. Seek to please him every day. And keep praying for him to, to you know to open doors for you and things, but just relax. Just enjoy the process of living day to day. Take the freedom and burden off of yourself. Again, God's will, it's a relation primarily into character more than anything else. If, you, if you're worried about the destiny stuff, I mean, Proverbs does say um, about, you know, the Lord directs our steps. So just keep praying that the Lord opens doors and closes doors. Seek the counsel of others that you trust. And again, make this, um, make, be free to make decisions, but again, ask God to protect you in those decisions. Focus your time, though, primarily on your sanctification and your holiness. Number two, one can be walking and pleasing to God even if there's room for spiritual growth. I love this. Twice he says, you are pleasing, but I want you to excel all the more. So again, all of us in here have room to grow spiritually. But just because we have room to grow doesn't mean that the Lord's not pleased with you. That's kind of a great lesson, isn't it? When you have room to grow, you usually focus on what you're not doing well and make that the primary thought life that you carry. So if you're not doing well in an area, you make that the entire focus of your thinking and not how you're pleasing to God. Paul is turning this on his head. He's saying, listen, guys, you are pleasing to the Lord. You are. But there's room for growth. So please, for those of you who like to condemn yourself, please take like a solace in this lesson alone. May this free you as well. Number three, all sexual activity outside of a marriage union is forbidden by the Lord. And again, I would just use those five points of wisdom to say, why does he care so much? But it's about a relationship and your protection, not about a killjoy who loves rules. Number four, Paul teaches us that our motivation to obey the Lord in the area of sexual purity should come from a desire to please him as well as a healthy fear. Right? That is clear in the text in verse one. Right? You are pleasing to God. Do the, it's about Jesus. Follow these commands because of him. Please the Lord. So that's your primary motivation. But secondly, if you take advantage of his grace, he's an avenger. So there's a healthy fear to be had there too. And that's like any relationship, with, especially with kids with their parents, right? When you're young, you have this like desire to please and a desire to respect, but you also have this sort of healthy fear of mom and dad if, the, if you don't uh, sort of toe the line after a while. It's a healthy thing to live under those boundaries. And number five, uh, Christians that have the ability to work are not to be lazy and depend on others for their provisionary needs. Again, there's grace here. We're not talking about people who've fallen hard times with like a natural disaster, wipes out their house, or 
they're in between jobs, or, or people get sick. There's lots of things. We're talking about, well, we know who we're talking about, people who are like, my, like me, with my sort of like strength and stature and, and, and ability to work, and I choose not to, and I say, Darcy, I want you to take care of me and my family. <laughs> like, you, you'd be like, what are you doing, Andrew? Like, you can work. I know, but Darcy makes a lot of money, so I'm going to rely on him. <laughs> I mean, what a... Anyway, I could go on about that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's it for the day. And so i uh, love to hear your comments and questions and rebuttals if you have any. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that what was written 2,000 years ago is completely relevant for today. Thank you that we are learning from Thessalonica because that culture has so many similarities to ours in Okotoks and in Canada in general. So we get to learn from them and make good choices going forward as you, Lord, has revealed to us the way you want us to live and the way you want us to conduct ourselves. And again, just has nothing to do with because you said so. It's because you were willing to lay our life, your life down for us before we could even do anything to please you. It's out of that sacrifice, Lord, that we sacrifice ourselves and give you our lives in sanctification and holiness. Thank you, God, that even if we've been victims of these things that we've spoken about today or even been on the perpetrating side of things, that you have forgiven us and that you continue to forgive us for, these, for anything we're going through. And for those who are victims, Lord, that there's been is healing given. There's no forgiveness needed if you're a victim. What you need is a healing hand, a healing touch from your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would minister to those who have been hurt by the things we've spoken about today. Bring healing in the fullness to them, Lord. May your Holy Spirit fill them with your love. In Jesus' name.